Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Do grab a Bible and open to Esther chapter 8, which is on page 506 in the Church Bibles. And we'll be starting at verse 1. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favour and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written, overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see the disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now, write another decree in the king's name on the behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned, and on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed forces of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be written as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses raced out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. Mordecai left the king's presence, wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and purple robe of fine linen, and the, king and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour. In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebration. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities, in all the provinces of King Xerxes, to attack those seeking their destruction. 
No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all of the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Asphatha, Poratha, Adaliah, Aradatha, Parmashta, Arasai, Aradai, and Vezatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on gallows. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. Father God, we thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ, and we thank you for all that you will do for us at Christ's return. And Father, tonight, might you strengthen our faith and our trust in that hope of the future. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please do take a seat and pick your Bibles back up and turn back to Esther at chapter 8. A friend on, of mine posted on uh, Facebook, uh, he said this recently, he said, another Saturday, another newspaper that's hard to read. He then reflected on a, a number of issues, a number of articles uh, relating to Christianity in that newspaper. And he reflected at the end and said, in the end, you're left with the impression Orthodox Christianity is bizarre, immoral, out of touch, oppressive, corrupt. I wonder whether you sometimes can feel that as well as you live in our world. You know, I've come across people who just can't fathom why you'd be a Christian and follow a man, Jesus, who lived 2,000 years ago. To them, it just seems bizarre. I know of other people who are seeking to be faithful to God sexually and other people say to them and are quite angry at them for having that view. They say they're being oppressive to other people. They're restricting people. They're being immoral to do that even. And then you hear church leaders even who want to conform and want to change what we believe They say that England expects change and so we must change Orthodox Christianity to the shape of the culture around us. I speak to students often who feel that religion and Christianity in particular is a dangerous religion. 
It's corrupt. Well, my friend, after reflecting on those things, so this was how he was going to start his sermon today. So I've stolen it. This is somebody else's uh, sermon. Here we go. He says, sometimes I get the feeling that being a Christian isn't worth it. Christian faith is frequently pilloried as out of touch and out of date, ludicrous and irrational, immoral and distasteful. Churches have become bywords for self-interested behavior and worse. It feels to me sometimes as if we are on the wrong side of history, vainly clinging to a point of view that appeals to no one very much anymore. There's so much other interesting stuff going on. So why should we keep going? Or why should anyone start? It's a powerful little introduction. And it's those kind of questions that Esther answers as we come to look at it. Why should we keep going in the Christian faith? Why should anyone start as a Christian? We've already seen in Esther that God is in sovereign control behind the scenes. That God is faithful to his promises and to his people. But what we see tonight is the end of the story. And the end of the story in Esther, it helps us to see what the principle will be like at the end of all human history when Christ returns. And at the heart of these two chapters is the theme of reversal. You know, so far in Esther, we have seen Haman, and he was the one who held all the power. He was the strong man in the world. He was the king's right-hand man, and he held incredible power and control. He was able to manipulate the Jews into, the king, sorry, into agreeing to his request and his desires. In Esther, that was the destruction of all the Jews throughout the entire Persian Empire. And while Haman was the strong and the powerful man, The Jews and Mordecai and Esther were the weak and the powerless. They were not influential. Seemingly they could be exterminated at the request of another. They seemed too to be on the wrong side of history. It's how we can feel as Christians sometimes that we are weak, living on the edge But last week what we saw was Haman exposed as the enemy of God's people and put to death for it by the king. And in this chapter there starts a reversal. You see it starting in verses 1 and 2. That same day, that is the day that Haman was executed, King Xerxes gave Esther, Queen Esther, the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Now, it's really quite striking at the beginning of this chapter that these two weak, despised people up to this point are given this place of honor and power. You see, at the end of this story, it's not the case that the Jews then just went back to living their life as they did before with the threat removed. You see, no, these Jews start to gain more positions of prestige and power. Esther doesn't now need to hide that she is a Jew. And Mordecai can stand in the king's presence. There's a reversal going on. 
They now have the estate and the possessions of Haman. The wealth of Haman is theirs. Mordecai has the symbol of the king's authority, the, the king's own signet ring. You see the reversal that it starts at the end of the story. And the, the, this reversal will continue, but before we get to that, we need to see that while Esther and Mordecai are enjoying these positions, there is still danger posed. Last week we saw that Haman had been done away with, but the problem was Haman's plan still stood in effect. The decree that he had passed into law, it was still there. And so on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the enemies of God's people could destroy, kill, and annihilate them. That law still stood. Which is why you see Esther again pleading with the king. Did you see it in verse 3? Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he's pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? You see in Esther's words there, the danger that they still faced. The law still stood. The, people, the enemies of God's people could still destroy them on that one day. And so what will the king do? It's a, it's a tricky position for the king. We've read already in Esther that when the king makes a decree, then it can't be revoked. It can't be taken away. And so the decree still stands and the king couldn't just countermand it. And so what he does is he tells Esther and Mordecai to issue another decree. And just look at verse 7. King Xerxes replies to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. You see, Esther and Mordecai are now given the right to determine the fate of the Jews. And in what follows, Esther issues this second decree, the second decree which would stand alongside the first one. And the striking thing as we read through the rest of the chapter is how these two chapters parallel each other. So in chapter 3, we see Haman devising his plan and what happens. And here in chapter 8, we see Mordecai point by point reversing it in a new law. Let me just show some of that. Some of the passages from chapter 3 will come up on the screen. We've seen the first part. See, in chapter 3, we read this. In verse 10, he says, So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman. Do you remember what we saw in verse 2 of chapter 8? The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. There is, the reversal is starting. And then in chapter 3, in verses 12 and 13, we read this. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. 
They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces. Now, remember that and see what happens in verse 9 of chapter 8. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and in the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. You see how point by point they're starting to be reversed? In chapter 3 we read this, with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they'd be ready for that day. And then back in verse 11 of chapter 8, you see what's said? The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves and listen to the words to destroy, kill and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. You see, by the end of chapter 3, we read of the couriers being sent out and the edict being published in Susa. The same thing we read in verse 14. The couriers riding royal horses raced out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. You see, point by point, there is a reversal going on. The opposite of what Haman had planned was now being allowed. And whereas in chapter 4, we see the response to Haman's edict was Mordecai wearing sackcloth and ashes and going out and mourning and people mourning throughout the whole of the province. Look at verse 15. Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. Mordecai now addressed as the prime minister walks out. And it goes on, verse 16. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. You see, no longer are they mourning. Now it's a time for celebration. And the whole point that we're meant to see in chapter 8 is that things are being reversed. The fortunes of the Jews are being reversed from where they were. You see, the decree of Haman still stood, but now by this point-by-point reversal, the Jews are given the opportunity, indeed the right, to defend themselves when people come to try and kill them. 
So the enemies of God's people can still attack. Haman's um, decree still stands. But God's people are now given the right to defend themselves against those people. The enemies of God's people are given the right to plunder the goods of the Jews. Uh, The Jews are given the right to plunder the enemies of God. And in chapter 9, we get to that day, the day of the pogrom. You see, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king to be, was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. This was the day the enemies had been hoping for, the day when they were going to wipe out God's people. It must have been a frightening day for God's people. Yet now they had the right to defend themselves. And that's what we see them doing. And the key words come next. You see what it says? Tim read them before to us. But now the tables were turned. And the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The tables were turned. The weak, the powerless people of God, the marginalized and persecuted people of God get the upper hand. The people of God who maybe thought they were on the wrong side of history get the upper hand. The tables are turned. And you see what happens? The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. You see, they're now going to attack and destroy those who come out to destroy them. And no one could stand against them. Because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. See, the tables were turned. The deliverance which come from God led to this reversal. And we even see the archetypal enemy of God's people being destroyed. This time, it's not Haman, but Haman's sons. You see, like father, like son, Haman's sons come to attack God's people. They lead an offensive against God's people in Susa, and they are destroyed. You see it in verse 6. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adaliah, Aridatha, Parmashta, Arisai, Aridai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. You see the reversal taking place? As Haman's sons attack the people of God, they are the ones who are actually destroyed. And what might seem a, a gruesome act, these archetypal enemies of God's, people, of God's people, these ten sons of Haman, are hung. You see, it was just the common practice of the time of uh, taking the dead bodies of your enemies and hanging them up for all to see that they are dis- defeated and destroyed. You know, by the end of the chapter, we get some sense of the extent of the hatred against God's people. Did you see it in verse 16 when we read? Halfway through verse 16. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. You see, on that one day, 75,000 people, enemies of God's people, came out to try and destroy the Jews, and yet the tables were turned, and they were the ones who were destroyed. 
You know, it's quite gruesome. Although there is restraint as God's people defended themselves. Did you hear that three times we are told that although they had the right to plunder the goods of their enemies, God's people didn't do that. You see it at the end of verse 10 and 15 and in 16. It says they did not lay their hands on the plunder. And yet the big thing that we see here is the tables were turned. That when God's people are delivered, there's a reversal of fortunes. See, the people of God may seem weak and powerless on the wrong side of history. Yet when ultimate deliverance comes, there's a reversal of fortunes. The end of the story shows God in his sovereign power acting on behalf of his people. And in this principle that we see here in Esther, it was worked out some 400 years later. You see, 400 years later, there was a man, not just one of the people of God, but the anointed Messiah. And the anointed Messiah was arrested and beaten and convicted by both a religious and a secular court on trumped-up false charges. At that point, he seemed weak and powerless at the mercy of other people. He seemed on the wrong side of history. And this man was crucified on a Roman cross, hung up to show that he was defeated and beaten. At that time, 400 years later, it looked like the enemies of God's people had won. And yet there was a complete reversal. The tables were turned. The anointed one of God, the Lord Jesus, was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the power on high. You see, Jesus had the ultimate reversal. He sits in now in the place of ultimate power and authority and prestige. He was exalted to the highest place and given the name above every name. You see, Jesus was vindicated and the defeat was, was reversed. And that was true for Jesus and it's also true for those who follow Jesus. You see, the Christian faith might be pilloried as out of touch and out of date, ludicrous and irrational, immoral and distasteful. We might be marginalized and weak, but in the end, the tables will be turned. Being one of God's people means that in the end, you will be vindicated. It means in the end, everyone will see the power and the glory and the victory of the Lord Jesus. They will see the living and true God. Did you notice in our passage, we see the reaction of some of the people? In verse 17 of chapter 8, we see that the the people had fear of the Jews. In 9-2, we see the same thing, that people were afraid of the Jews. You see, at that time, they realized that they'd made a mistake in being an enemy of God's people. And there's many people now who are enemies of God's people and some of them don't even realize that they are enemies of God. And yet that's what they are. And in the end, it will come to the end of the story when all wrongs will be righted, when all wrongs will be judged by the heavenly judge of all. And those people will be on the wrong side of history. And so that's one of the reasons why we keep going. 
One of the reasons why we keep telling people of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, of the one who was crucified on the cross for them and was vindicated, who now sits at the right hand of the Father. It's why we keep showing people the Lord Jesus. Because they can still return to him and turn to him and find forgiveness. They can still come and be on the right side of history. And we don't lose heart in doing that. We don't lose heart when people say that we have an out-of-date message. We don't lose heart when we start to feel that we are out of touch. We don't stop when we feel like we're on the wrong side of history. Because we know that in the end there's going to be a great reversal. And so we keep going and we keep telling people the old, old story of the gospel. You see, when we feel that we are weak and powerless and out of touch, we remember this reversal. The reversal which has happened in the past and which will ultimately happen in the future when Christ returns. And so when we ask, why should we keep going? We remember the reality of the future. When we ask the question, why should anyone start? We remember the reality of the future. Let me pray for us. Father God, you know our fears, you know our worries, you know our concerns. And Father, we thank you for your word which addresses our hearts and our minds. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us by your Spirit. Would you help us to take to heart what we learn from Esther, this great reversal? And may you strengthen us to keep following you, despite what may be said about us, despite what people might think about us. May you convince us once more of the truth of the gospel and help us to keep going and keep holding out that truth of the gospel to those around us so they too can come and to know the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus and to know that they are on the right side of history when they will be vindicated in the end and they will have eternal life and hope with you forever. We pray that you would strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen.